All right, well, we're there in Psalm 136. And as you know, we're going through a series. This is now the third part in a series on this topic of creation versus evolution. And uh, I do want to encourage you, if you haven't been here for the last two sermons, I want to encourage you to go on our website and listen to the MP3 file or go on our YouTube page and watch the video. Uh, because these sermons, in, in, a, in some way, are kind of building on each other. And if you remember the first week, we talked about the foolishness of atheism. The Bible says the fool had said in his heart, there is no God. And we talked about all those things that would not exist if there was no God, like moral absolutes, conscience, soul, value to life. We, uh, last week, we went through a sermon called Science Falsely So-Called. And we went through... Uh, all of the so-called scientific evidence that they have for evolution, and we showed how it's not science at all because science is something that can be observed, it can be predicted, it can be experimented upon, and uh, we can perform tests on it. This week, we're going to talk about, and the the title of the sermon is The Heavens Declare, and we're going to talk about how nature reveals or nature points towards a uh, creator. And you're there in Psalm 136. I want you to look down at verse number 5, Psalm 136. And do me a favor, put a ribbon or a bookmark or a bulletin or something there in, in the book in Psalm 136 because we're going we're gonna to leave it, but we're going to come back to the book of Psalms. So I'd like you to be able to get to it quickly. Psalm 136 and verse 5 says this, To him that, I want you to notice these words, By wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endureth forever. The Bible tells us here, that the heavens were created by God, but they were not just created in a sense where because he's omnipresent, he just made it happen. Although, of course, we understand that that's the case. God is omnipresent. Uh, God is uh, omnipotent, excuse me. God does have all power. But the Bible does tell us that it wasn't just his power, although it was his power, and we'll see that here in a minute. It was also his wisdom. When he created the heavens, he created it using his wisdom. You're there in Psalm 136. Go with me to Psalm 104. Keep your place in Psalms because we're going to leave it and we're going to come back to it. But go to Psalm 104 and look at verse number 24. Psalm 104 and verse number 24. Psalm 104 and verse 24. Psalm 104 and verse 24. The Bible says this, O Lord. Notice what he says. How manifold. The word manifold means Many or numerous. He says, how, how many, how manifold are thy works? Notice what he says. In wisdom thou hast made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. So here we are told that the works of God, they were made in wisdom. And specifically the earth is referenced here. And we're told again that it was done in wisdom. It was a wise God, a wise creator who put all of this into existence. Go to the book of Job. You're there in Psalms, just one book over, Job 37, and look at verse number 14. Job 37 and verse number 14. I just want you to see these references in Scripture, uh, because this is kind of the underlying thought of the sermon this morning. Job 37 and verse 14. Last week, we talked about the fact that the science that they use to prove evolution is faulty, but now we're, gonna not, we're not necessarily talking about evolution, although we'll, we'll talk about it, I'm sure, but we're talking about creation itself. Job 37 and verse 14, just one book before the book of Psalms, Job 37 and verse 14 says this, hearken unto this, O Job, stand still, notice what it says, notice what God says, and consider. The word consider means to think carefully about. So here, Job and you and I are being told to consider this, to think about this, to ponder upon this, and consider the wondrous works of God. We are told that we are to consider and think about and, and, and ponder upon the wondrous works of God. Look at verse 15. Does thou, not, uh, does thou know when God disposed them and caused the light of his cloud to shine? Does thou know the balancing of the clouds? Notice what he says. Verse 16. The wondrous works of him, which is perfect. Notice these two words, in knowledge. Do you see that? 
So the Bible tells us that God created the earth, God created the heavens and the earth, and all his wondrous works were done in wisdom. We saw that in the book of Psalms. Here in Job, we see that they were not only done in wisdom, but they were done in knowledge. Go to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter number 10. Now, if you're there in Job, remember, keep your place in Psalms, because we're going to come back to it. But if you're there in Job, you're going to go past Psalms, Proverbs, and you're going to go past Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, and then you got the book of Jeremiah. Those are the two, two big books towards the end of the Old Testament, you got Isaiah and Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 10. I'd like you to look at the the verses with me. Jeremiah chapter 10, Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, Isaiah, and Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 10, look at verse 12. Jeremiah chapter number 10 and verse 12. Notice what the Bible says. He hath made the earth by his power. So was his power involved, miraculous power involved? Of course it was, but notice what it says. He hath made the earth by his power. He hath established the world, notice what it says, by his wisdom and has stretched out the heavens by his discretion. So here we're told that he made, he established the world by his wisdom and he stretched out the heavens by his discretion. So in the Bible, when we look at the word of God, we see that God did create heaven and earth and all that in them is. He created all of that by his power, but we're told that he also did it by his wisdom and by his knowledge and by his discretion. Go to the book of Romans, Romans chapter number one. And I I know we're looking at a lot of verses right now and I'm just kind of laying a foundation. We're going to look at a lot of verses anyway, but uh, go to Romans. Romans chapter 1, in the New Testament, you got Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 1, now I could look at verse number 19. Romans chapter number 1 and verse number 19. Romans 1.19, the Bible says this, Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them, for God hath showed it unto them. Notice verse 20. For the invisible things of him from, notice these two words, the creation. Do you see that? For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. You say, well, how do we see the invisible things of him from the creation of the world? Notice what it says. Being understood by the things that are made. So how can we understand creation? How can we understand? Because it says that God manifested, uh, is manifest in them, for God hath showed himself unto them. How can we understand the invisible things of him from the creation of the world? And we're told here that we can understand it. He says, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. So here's what I want you to understand. According to Romans chapter number one, we should be able to look at the creation. And looking at creation, understand the things that are made. And according to Psalms, Job, the references, Jeremiah, the references we've been looking at, we should be able to look at the creation and not only see the eternal power and Godhead of God, but we should be able to see that it was a wise God, that it was a knowledgeable God, that it was a God with discretion that set these things in order. And here's what I want you to understand. We should be able to consider Right? Job was told, consider. We should be able to consider the creation and see a wise and knowledgeable creator. We should be able to look at nature and, and, and consider it and ponder it and think about it. And it should point towards the fact that this was not a mistake that this was not an accident, that this is not a result of an explosion, that all of this was set in motion, and it took someone that was all-powerful and all-knowledgeable. We should be able to see that it took uh, knowledge and wisdom. Today, many creationists call it intelligent design. I don't necessarily like that term. That's the term they use, and we'll see it in some of the quotes here. But we should be able to look at nature and see that it was a wise, knowledgeable creator. Who set these things into motion? Go to go to the book of Psalms. Go to Psalm nineteen. Psalm nineteen. I, I want to. I'm going to show you some specific references in Scripture that God specifically says, "Look at this," and it'll show you a wise, knowledgeable Creator, God. Psalm Psalm nineteen. Psalm nineteen. I'm not sure if I said Psalm one nineteen, but I, I meant Psalm nineteen, verse one. Psalm nineteen. To the, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Here, 
David, under the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, said, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. If you get your place in Psalm 136, I'd like you to go back there. Psalm 136, look at verse 5 again. Psalm 136 and verse 5. Psalm 136 and verse number 5. Notice what the Bible says. Psalm 136, 5 says, To him that by wisdom made the heavens, for his mercy endureth forever. Notice verse 6. To him that stretched out the earth above the waters, for his mercy endureth forever. To him that made great lights, for his mercy endureth forever. The sun to rule by day, for his mercy endureth forever. The moon and stars to rule by night, for his mercy endureth forever. Here we are being told exactly what it is that God did create when he created the heavens and the earth. He created not only the, the, the heavens. We're told that the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament. What firmament is just another word for the word heaven. The firmament showeth his handiwork. We're also told in Psalm 136 that he stretched out the earth, that he made great lights, the sun, the moon, the start. And here's what I want you to understand. We should be able to, we should be able to look at the complexity of the universe. Now, remember what I've been saying, I think every sermon in this series, my goal in this series is not to prove God to you. We cannot do that. You must come to God by faith. But without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, and that he is the rewarder of them that diligently seek him. We must come to God in faith. My goal is not to say, hey, look at these things, and that will prove God to you. But here's what I want you to consider this morning. When you look at the complexity of the creation, does it point, does it indicate towards the fact that there was a wise, knowledgeable creator? Or does it point and indicate towards chaos? towards a big explosion, a big bang, towards animals killing each other and surviving just by being more fit than others. Is that what the creation points at? So I want to give you several examples this morning. We saw here in Psalm 19 that we should be able to look at the heavens. We should be able to look at the earth and the sun and the moons and the stars and see. So point number one this morning, I'd like you to consider the complexity of the universe. The complexity of the universe. Now let me, let me give a quick disclaimer and say this. I am not a scientist, nor do I want to be one. I am a pastor, all right? I spend my day studying the Word of God. So I'm not going to sit here and try to, you know, act like ah, I just know all this stuff or whatever. I'm going to read quotes for you. And if you've noticed in the last several sermons, I've read quotes for you because of the fact that I'd rather read to you quotes from someone who is a scientist or someone who does know what they're talking about or someone who thinks they know what they're talking about in some cases uh, than, than to, to sit here and try to regurgitate something, you know, I watched on YouTube or something like that. All right. So, you know, if I don't get all the exact 10, you know, things right about science, um, I don't really care. All right. But uh, let me just read a couple of quotes for you. Now, this is not a quote. I'm just kidding. Of course, I'm here. This is this is not I'm going to read for you from an article from ABC.net. And this is not let me make this disclaimer. This is not a quote from a Christian uh, article. In fact, the, the title of the article is this. What is the Goldilocks zone and why does it matter in search of E.T.? All right. So these are supposed scientists that are looking for extraterrestrial life on other planets. Okay, this is what these people do for a living. But, but I want you to notice what they say in this article. The Goldilocks zone refers to the habitable zone around a star where the temperature is just right, not too hot and not too cold for liquid water to exist on a planet. Now, up to that point, I, I agree. I think that's great. Liquid water is essential for life as we know it. We, when, where we find liquid water on Earth, we also find life. Now, they're going to quote by Professor John Webb of the University of New South Wales, and he says this, The only life we know about is our carbon-based life, and water plays a crucial part in our existence, and so it's only natural that we direct our attention to planets and locations capable of having liquid water, uh, and he's talking about in order to be able to search for life on other planets. You lost me there, all right? You lost me at Star Trek. But here's what I, what I want you to understand. They acknowledge, in fact, they have a term for it, and it's supposed to be a scientific term, but it's kind of a funny term. They called it the Goldilocks zone. And of course, Goldilocks, if you remember the story, this pottage was too hot and this one was too cold, and she finally found the one that was just right. And they acknowledge the fact that the earth, 
where it sits in relation to the sun is in this Goldilocks zone. It's in the perfect place for it to be in order for it to sustain life. Let me read to you another quote. This is from a website, icr.org. This is a creation website. They wrote this, Earth is the only planet circling our sun on which life as we know it could and does exist. Like no other planet, ours is covered with green vegetation, enormous blue-green oceans containing over a million islands, hundreds of thousands of streams and rivers, huge land masses called continents, mountains, ice caps, and deserts that produce a spectacular variety of color and texture. Some form of life is found in virtually every ecological niche on the Earth's planet, uh, on the Earth's surface. Even in the extremely cold Antarctica, Hardy, microscopic beings thrive in ponds. Tiny, wingless insects live in patches of moss and lichen, and plant grow uh, and flower. And plants grow and flowers uh, and flower yearly. From the apex of the atmosphere to the bottom of the oceans, from the coldest part of the poles to the warmest part of the equator, life thrives here. To this day, no evidence of life has been found on any other planet. The Earth is immense in size, about 8,000 miles in diameter, with a mass calculated at roughly 6.6 by 1,021 tons. The Earth is on average 93 million miles from the sun. If the Earth traveled much faster in its 584 million mile long journey around the sun, its orbit would become larger and it would move farther away from the sun. If it moved too far from the narrow habitable zone, that's the zone they refer to as the Goldilocks zone, all life would cease to exist on Earth. If it traveled slightly slower in its orbit, orbit, the Earth would move closer to the sun. And if it moved too close, all life would likewise perish. The Earth's 365 days, 6 hour, 49 minute, and 9.54 second trip around the sun is consistent to over a thousandth of a second. If the yearly average temperature on the Earth's surface changed by only a few degrees or so, much of the life on it would eventually roast or freeze. This change would upset the water-to-ice ratio and other critical balances with disastrous results. If the Earth rotated slower on its axis, all life would die in time, either by freezing uh, at night because of lack of heat or from the sun, or by burning during the day from too much heat. Our normal Earth processes are assuredly unique among our solar system and according to what we know in the entire universe. And here's all I want you to understand. Where the Earth sits right now, the planet that you and I have been living on for however old you are, traveling hundreds of, you know, I mean, as far as this article tells us, at the speed that this article tells us, it sits exactly where it needs to sit in order for life to be able to thrive here. Now, you can say, well, that's just a coincidence, or you can say, no, that was by design. But here's what I want you to understand. Where the earth sits, where the earth sits in relation to the sun is exactly where it needs to be. But there's, it's more than just that. Because you can say, well, that's just a coincidence. You know, this just was the planet that, uh, you know, uh, won the lottery. But here's what you need to understand. Not only where the earth sits, in relation to the sun, is it exactly where it needs to be in order for life to exist? But also the laws of physics are perfectly balanced for life to be able to exist. Let me read a quote for you. Again, this is a man named Robin Collins, and he is a philosopher with degrees in mathematics and physics. And this is in an interview he did for The Case for a Creator. He says this, the laws of physics are balanced on a razor's edge for life to occur. For example, if you didn't have something like gravity that pulled matter together, you would never get planets. You wouldn't get stars. You wouldn't get any complex organisms. If you didn't have a strong nuclear force, there would be nothing to hold protons and neutrons together in the nucleus, and you wouldn't have any atoms, so no chemistry. If you didn't have the, electro, the electromagnetic force, you would have no bonding between chemicals, you would have no light, and the list goes on and on. So, you need all these sorts of fundamental principles to be in place in order for life to occur. Wipe out one of those principles. Wipe out one of those laws, and you have no life. We are told that there are about 30 laws of physics and nature that have to, they have to be exactly where they're at 
in order for life to occur. And here's what I want you to understand. When you look at the universe, when you look at the solar system, when you look at the earth and the moon and the stars and, 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 and the heavens, what it looks like, what it looks like is that the universe has been fine-tuned and this planet has been fine-tuned for life to be able to occur here. Jay Richards, philosopher, uh, said this in the same interview. He says, if the universe looks like it's fine-tuned for complex life, maybe there's a fine-tuner. Maybe it was fine-tuned for life. Here's what journalist Lee Strobel said. He said, why is it that the planet Earth just happens to have this incredibly elaborate and self-sustaining ecosystem, and beyond that, how is it that the numbers of the universe, the physics of the universe, are calibrated on a razor's edge so that life can exist? Is all of this a mere accident, or is it evidence that points toward an intelligent designer? And again, the point that I'm trying to make this morning is this. You say, well, if you, when you look at the laws of, of physics, does that prove a God? No. And, and we don't attempt to. We, we, we are, this is a church, we are a religion. The, the, the main thrust, the main difference between us and evolution is that they won't admit that they're a religion. They won't admit that you have to accept what they say by faith, that there's no science behind it. We're not telling you any of this proves that there is a God. But what I am saying is this, when you observe and consider the heavens, when you observe and consider the earth and the the sun and the moon and the stars, does that indicate a wise and knowledgeable creator who gave us a perfect environment for life to be able to exist? Or does that point towards explosions, nothingness. You say, well, that's, well, that's the heavens, the complexity of the heavens. That, you know, maybe that's not convincing enough, okay? Well, let me, uh, let's talk about the complexity of animal life. If you're there in Psalms, I'd like you to go back to Job, Job chapter 12, and look at verse number 7. Job chapter 12, Does nature declare a wise and knowledgeable God? Job chapter 12. Look at verse number 7. Notice what the Bible says. Job chapter 12 and verse 7. Job 12, 7. But ask now the beasts. The beasts are the animals. And they shall teach thee. The Bible says if we ask the beasts, they will teach us. And the fowls. Those are the birds of the air. And they shall tell thee, or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee. And the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee, who knoweth not in all these that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this. I want you to notice the last part of verse 9. It says that the hand of the Lord hath wrought. The word wrought means has worked, has produced. This produced what? The beast, the fowls. The earth, the fishes. He says, if you ask the earth, if you ask the fishes, if you ask the, uh, the beasts, if you ask the animals, they will tell you that the hand of the Lord hath wrought this. Now, of course, you don't physically go and, you know, you don't go home and grab your little goldfish and say, hey, is there a God? You know, okay, he's not going to talk to you, all right? Unless you're, you know, when, when, when a donkey starts talking to you, you're in trouble. You know what I mean? It's not, a, it's not a good thing. But here's what I want you to understand. We should be able to look at the complexity of animal life, of the beast, of the birds, of the fishes, and be able to see that they declare to us that there is a wise and knowledgeable creator who created them. Go, go to Psalm 104. Psalm 104. While you turn to Psalm 104, I'd like to read a quote for you from Charles Darwin himself. Charles Darwin wrote this in his book, The Origin of Species, which, of course, is the famous uh, book that promoted evolution. Psalm 104, and I'll read for you this quote from Charles Darwin. He said this, he wrote this, If it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. He said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed 
If there's a complex organ that could not have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. So here's what he's saying. If you can find an animal that there's no way it evolved to its state, that the state that it happens to be in could not have happened with numerous successive slight modifications, he said, you would disprove my theory of evolution. Are you there in Psalm 104? Look at verse number 24. Psalm 104 and verse 24. And I understand that the sermons in this series aren't as much preaching as we normally do here at Verity Baptist Church, and tonight we'll be definitely just in the Bible and, and preaching like we normally do. But I think these things are important, especially for all the children here, all the children that are being brainwashed into believing that there is no God. Psalm 104 and verse 24, notice what the Bible says. Psalm 104 and verse 24 says, O Lord, how manifold are thy works! In wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. So is thy great and wide sea wherein are, notice what he says, things creeping innumerable, both small and great beasts. So God says, hey, look at the animals and they'll, they'll show you that the complexity of animal life indicates that there is a wise and knowledgeable creator. Now, we, we could go, we could spend hours just going through, you know, example after example. I'm not going to do that. But I think it's interesting because in Psalm 104, he specifically talks about creeping, about things creeping, referring to insects. And uh, I want to read for you about this, this article by a man named Dr. Martin. This is from the Exploration Films. And he talks about an insect that basically disproves evolution by Charles Darwin's own uh, admission because this animal could not have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications. Let me read for you uh, from his interview. He, re- he said this, the first thing that we really studied together, he's talking about when he was first exposed, because ev- he was an evolutionist, and he was first exposed with this idea that uh, there was another, you know, an- there was another uh, concept out there. There was another idea out there of creation science, and-, and he began to look into it. And he said, the first thing that we really studied together was this little bug called a bombardier beetle, And this little insect is about a half inch long, and it mixes chemicals that explode. Now, you know, I'd never really heard of this animal until I began studying. I found out my kids actually studied it in their uh, curriculum, which I was happy about. So some of your kids might might know about this already. But he says, let, let me keep reading. This little bug called a bombardier beetle, and this little insect is about a half inch long, and it mixes, it mixes chemicals that explode. So I began to think, okay, now how would that evolve? Let's say if evolution is true, and you're evolving along here, and you don't have a defense mechanism, because that is the defense mechanism of the bug, so if evolution is true, it had to somehow evolve that. Now, he's referring to evolving the defense mechanism, the fact that it can mix these chemicals and create an explosion. So let's say it's coming along here. Well, the first time it evolves the explosion, what does it do to the bug? Boom. You just splattered your bug. Okay, so splattered bug pieces don't evolve. And, and I'm going to get back to his interview here, but let me, uh, just, just so you kind of expl- explain what he's referring to, let me read for you from another article about this uh, bombardier beetle from the uh, ICR uh, research. It, it says this, this scientist is a different scientist, Dr. Herman Schildknecht found out, first of all, the bombardier beetle mixes up to two kinds of chemicals, hydrogen peroxide and hydroquinone. Now, the marvelous thing about this is, if you or I went into a chemistry laboratory and mixed up these two chemicals, boom, we would blow ourselves up. But not the bombardier beetle. He's too smart. When he mixes up these two chemicals, he makes sure to add another kind of chemical called an inhibitor. The inhibitor somehow prevents the other two chemicals from blowing up. In other words, they just sit there together real peaceful like. The beetle then stores this liquid into two storage, uh, storage chambers ready to be used when needed. He, he goes on in, in the article and he says this, how does Mr. BB, referring to the bombardier beetle, make the chemical solution explode just at the right time in spite of the fact that it contains an inhibitor? Dr. Schildnick found out 
Just at the exact moment Mr. BB wants to fire his two cannons, he squirts an anti-inhibitor. The anti-inhibitor neutralizes or knocks out the inhibitor, and the two chemicals, the hydrogen peroxide and the hydroquone, can then re- react violently together and explode. Now, let me, let me go back to finish the article, because I wanted you to get that understanding of how this beetle works from Dr. Martin from the exploration uh, films. He says this, the explosion on this little bug... All you hear, if you're listening as a human, you hear this pop. But scientists have now put the explosion in slow motion, and it's like a tra 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 tra. It's like a thousand sequential little explosions, but they are so fast, all we hear is one pop. And so you think, why would that be? Well, that was a curious thing for the scientists that studied this little bag. Uh, little bag, good night. Little bug. Um, English is my second language, so keep that in mind who study this little bug, a lot of them at Cornell University and some other places, and what they discovered was that if it, just, if it was just one big pop, he's going to pop himself right out of there. It's like lighting a burner on a jet engine. But as long as it is sequential explosions, which his little legs uh, can then hang on, how would evolution explain a sequential explosion? This little bug messes with all the theories of evolution. There is no way to slow, no way a slow, gradual process is going to produce this bug. How could this particular little animal, for instance, evolve? It needed all of its parts. It needed everything there all at once, or you just don't have the animal. So again, this idea that evolution teaches that you just, you know, slowly, successively add genes to the gene pool and you create these animals would not work for this bombardier beetle because if it doesn't have everything it needs, it's just going to blow itself up. So again, how, you say, well, does that prove God? Not necessarily. I think it absolutely disproves evolution. There's no way that this bug evolved over millions of years or whatever. But here's the thing. It came into existence all at once. It's the only way that that could have happened. Are you still there in Psalm 104? Look at it again. Psalm 104, look at verse 24. Psalm 104 and verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are thy works, and wisdom hast thou made them all. The earth is full of thy riches. So is the great and wide sea. Once you notice the reference there, so is the great and wide sea, wherein are things creeping innumerable, both small and great beasts. So he tells us, hey, look at the creeping things. Well, we saw one, the bombardier beetle. You say, could that evolve? No. There's no way that slowly happened over millions of years. But then he also tells us, hey, look at the great and wide sea, both small and great beasts. He says, if you look at the great beast and the wide sea, they'll show you that there was a wise creator God. Which I thought was interesting because evolutionists teach that the whale, you know, that is in the oceans today, evolved from a land animal to a sea animal. In fact, the National Center for Science and Education has literature that states that a cow basically evolved into a whale. And that's what they, they teach, you know. And, uh, and, 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 but God says, hey, look at this, the great and white sea. Look at the great beast. Now, let me just read to you something real quickly from, uh, about the whale, right? This is from discovery.org. And they said this, many changes would have been necessary to convert a land mammal into a whale, including emergence of a blowhole, with musculature and nerve control, modification of eyes for permanent underwater vision, ability to drink seawater, forelimbs transformed into flippers, modification of skeletal structure, ability to nurse young underwater, origin of tail flukes and musculature, blubber for temperature insulation. All of those things, all of those changes would have had to happen to turn a land mammal into a whale. So here's the question I have for evolutionists. Did all of that happen gradually over millions of years? I mean, did you have, did you, you had a, a, a cow that, or whatever that turned into a whale and it, you know, it had all the blubber for temperature insulation, but no blowhole, so it can't breathe. It has a blowhole, but it can't, you know, nurse young underwater, so nothing survives. 
It, can, uh, it has the ability to nurse young underwater, but, you know, uh, it, it's, it's going to freeze to death because it doesn't have the blubber needed for temperature insulation. It can't drink seawater. See, is, evolution wants you to think that, well, no, over millions of years, you know, you can have these little tiny changes that will turn this land animal into a water animal. But here's the problem with that. To turn the land animal into a water animal requires a lot of changes that happen immediately. The thing can't just survive underwater. You know, for millions of years it was blind. For millions of years it couldn't breathe. For millions of years it couldn't, uh, you know, uh, feed its young underwater. But, uh, you know, eventually it all caught up and now we have the whale today. It doesn't work. It's not science. And here's all I'm saying. Here's all I'm saying. When you look at the complexity of nature, when you look at the complexity of animals, of insects, of the stars, of the heavens, does it point towards the fact that there is no direction, there's just, you know, natural selection, there's just chaos, or does it point towards the fact of what the Bible says, that it took a wise and discerning and knowledgeable God to put all of this into motion. I mean, what, is the, what, what, what does nature indicate? Because the Bible says that we can understand creation by looking at the things that are made. Let me give you another one. Go to Psalm 139. Psalm 139. Look at verse number 13. Psalm 139 in verse number 13. And there's so, so much that we could go into and I just don't, don't have the time to. Psalm 139 in verse 13. Because of the fact that Spanish was my first language for years, I, I can't get my tongue to say so. I know how the word should sound, but I just I wish my tongue would evolve, you know, to the place where it could just say those words. So if you hear those from time to time, I apologize. Psalm 139, look at verse 13. Psalm 139 and verse 13. But, you know, at least I can breathe, so that's good. Psalm 139. And verse 13, notice what the Bible says. Psalm 139, verse 13. For thou hast possessed my reins. Thou hast covered me in my mother's womb. Notice verse 14. I will praise thee, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Not only does the Bible say that the heavens declare the glory of God. Not only does the Bible say that the beasts and the animals, but here the psalmist tells us that you can look at our own creation. You can look at us as human beings. He says, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. Notice verse 15. My substance was not hid from thee. He says, the, the things that I was made of, the substance that I was made of, was not hid from thee. When I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lower parts of the earth. Notice verse 16. Thine eyes did see my substance. Yet being unperfect, and in thy book all my members were written, which in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. He's talking about a human being being formed in the womb. And by the way, this chapter proves that in the womb, God knows of them, God loves them, God has created them. They are just as much human as, as anyone sitting here today. You know, so don't, don't let, you know, and we'll talk about this in another sermon, but evolution has definitely played a part in the abortion holocaust that our, that our nation is experiencing today. Teaching people that, you know, we're not, I mean, good night, according to evolution, we're just animals anyway, whether in the womb or not. And then teaching that they're not even humans in the womb, you know, all of that craziness. But the Bible says here, look, I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works. He says, my substance was not hid from thee. He says, thine eyes did see my substance. So we should be able to look at the complexity of our own bodies. And it should indicate the fact that there is a wise and knowledgeable creator. Now, we could look at a lot of different things. We could look at the way that our blood system works. We could look at our eyes. We could look at all sorts of things. But I want to uh, focus in on the human cell. I want you to consider the complex of the cells and ask yourself, does this indicate that there was a wise and knowledgeable creator? Now, if you remember our quotes from Charles Darwin, he said, if it could be demonstrated that any complex organ existed which could not possibly have been formed by numerous successive slight modifications, my theory would absolutely break down. Now, I want to read to you from, uh, let's see, this is from a website, ideacenter.org. It's an article called, 
irreducible complexity, the challenge to the Darwinian evolution explanation of many bio, biochemical structures. And uh, let me, I don't know if I'll read all of this, but let me read some of it to you. Michael Behe, biochemical researcher and professor at Lehigh University in Pennsylvania, claims to have shown exactly what Darwin claimed would destroy the theory of evolution through a concept he calls irreducible complexity. In simple terms, this idea applies to any system of interacting parts in which the removal of any one part destroys the function of the entire system. An irreducibly complex system then requires each and every component to be in place before it will function. Note what this implies. An irreducibly complex system cannot come about in a gradual manner. All the components must be in place before it functions at all. A step-by-step approach to constructing such a system will result in a useless system until all the components have been added. The system requires all the components to be added at the same time in the right configuration before it works at all. So that's what he refers to as that uh, irreducible complexity. Now, let's talk about... Uh, biology. How does irreducible complexity apply to biology? Behe notes that early this century, before biologists really understood the cell, they had a very simplistic model of its inner workings without the electron microscopes uh, and other advanced techniques that now allow scientists to peer into the inner workings of the cell. It was assumed that the cells was a fairly simple blob of protoplasm. The living cell was a black box, something that could not be observed, observed to perform various functions while its inner workings were unknown and mysterious. Therefore, it was easy and justifiable to assume that the cell was a simple collection of molecules, but not anymore. Technological advances have provided detailed information about the inner workings of the cell. So here's what I understand. When Darwin wrote his book and when the, the theory of evolution, uh, evolution was promoted, we did not, people did not have an understanding of the human cell. They, 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 they understood they existed, they understood that they performed functions, but they did not understand how they worked. And they looked at them as very uh, uh, not complex uh, organisms. They, they looked at them as fairly simple blobs of protoplasm, and they just kind of thought that they were just these molecules and there was no big deal and it was easy. In fact, they thought that was the first step. You know, you go from, like we talked about last week, the primordial soup, chemicals just swirling around an ocean, and then that accidentally turned into, the, uh, in, into a cell. Now, here's the thing about that. We've learned a lot more about the human cell uh, since Darwin wrote his book. Let me read for you an article called Bacterial Flagellum Evidence for a Creator. This is by a, a man named C.L. Taylor, and I won't read all of it to you, but I, I'll read you enough to make the point. There's an amazing little rotary engine that is in use trillions upon trillions of times every day that provides irrefutable evidence that there is a creator. Like an outboard motor, this engine has a propeller, stator, motor, universal joint, drive shaft, and bushings, and it perhaps and is perhaps one of the most energy-efficient machines in the world. Now, I want you to understand, they're not just calling the parts the, by those names to, to make a point. Those, those parts, that's what they are. They're called that because this, this little uh, flagellum literally has a propeller and a stator and a motor and all of those things. The propeller operates at between, don't miss this, 6,000 and 100,000 revolutions per minute and can completely reverse. Now, to a lot of you, that means nothing, but to some of you who like to go fast, that's pretty fast. 6,000 to 100,000 revolutions per minute and can completely reverse its uh, direction within a quarter turn of its body. You might guess that it is a machine used in heavy industry, but without an electron microscope, you cannot see this incredible piece of machinery called a flagellum. It is the motor that propels bacteria. Bacteria are essential to life. They aid in the digestion and fight uh, other bad bacteria. And I've got a picture, if any of the kids want to see it. I don't don't think I have it here. I have it in my office. But they have a picture of this flagellum, and it's literally just a machine. Of course, it's not metal or plastic. It's made out of, uh, you you know, it's, it's biology. But this thing is, 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 is basically an engine 
that our cells use to travel and to do the things that they need to do. Let me keep reading here. It says, a flagellum helps the bacteria move through liquid. It is composed of 30 to 40 working parts and makes up a system. Uh, Michael Behe, professor of biochemistry at Lehigh University, calls irreducibly complex, meaning that no part of the machine is of any value without the other parts. This is a big problem for evolutionists because any part of the organism like this would not and could not have evolved over time. All must be present in order to function, and without even one small part, the flagellum would be useless. Evolution teaches that bacteria were one of the first life forms to evolve, but most bacteria could not survive without this incredible outboard motor of the flagellum. When Darwin proposed the theory of evolution, he did not have access to an electron microscope and hence believed a single cell was the smallest and simplest component of living creatures. We now know that living cells contain a host of specialized machinery to keep the cell healthy, repaired, and reproducing. The documentary The Hidden Life of a Cell by the BBC states that there are at least a billion little machines in each of the 120 trillion cells that make up a human being. And there's more here that I could read, and let me look at it real quickly and see. Let me skip some of this for sake of time, but let me read this. How can anyone who honestly studies living cells doubt that a superior intelligence created them? Even if evolutionists could explain the irreducibly complex mechanisms of a system like the flagellum, and they do try, they cannot account for the intelligence inside it. What tells the flagellum to rotate its powerful tail, and who tells it where to go and what to do? Who tells it how to build or repair itself and abort production if something goes wrong? Biochemists, engineers, and scientists in every field have come to see that the premise behind Darwinism that life is a result of blind chance and mindless, undirected evolution is not supportable and that the only reasonable explanation for life is is intelligent design. And again, I'm not telling you that this proves God, nor would I try. But here's the question I have for you. Because the whole point of this sermon was this, and that's why we started the sermon by just reading all those passages. According to the Bible, we should, in fact, the Bible tells us that we should be able to consider and observe the creation, specifically creeping things, birds, animals, beasts. We should be able to look at the earth, the sun, the moon. We should be able to look at our own substance and the things that our body was made of, and it should indicate for us. It should show and reveal. You say, well, what should it show? It should show that whoever created us was very knowledgeable. It's very wise. That, 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 that flagellum motor that runs all the cells that make you up, that thing was designed. And look, if we, I mean, if we could design a motorcycle or a car that could, you know, have an engine that could have 100,000 RPMs per minute, uh, we, you know, we, there, there'd be no survival of the fittest. I mean, we, none of us would survive that thing, right? And, and here's what I'm telling you. Whoever designed this thing, was wise, was knowledgeable, was, was very discerning in his ability to create. And the Bible, and the Bible states that it was God. Go back to Psalm 139. We'll, we'll finish up. And like I said, I, we, we give you a hundred examples. I just want to give you a few, just, just to ask you, just to ask you, when you look at the complexity of the universe, when you look at the fact that the earth sits exactly where it needs to in relation to the sun, for life to exist. When you look at the fact that the laws of physics, and we're told there's about 30 of them, that all had to be in the perfect place. Because gravity is not the same everywhere. You know, all of these laws are not the same everywhere, but they, they all had to be in the right place, balanced at the, at the right places for life to occur. Does that point towards chaos, or does that point towards a wise and knowledgeable creator God? When we look at the complexity of animal life, Does that point towards chaos or to a design, a wise, knowledgeable creator God? When you look at the complexity of cells, does that that point towards chance? And boy, man, we just got lucky. You, You could not build the flagellum. It could not evolve. All of the parts had to be there. And by the way, and I didn't bring this article. I wish I would have. But there's another article that shows that the way that the DNA and the RNA the DNA and the RNA holds the information needed to be able to produce these cells. And this, the idea is that, you know, you have to have the molecular machines there to be able to evolve, but you couldn't get the information to create those machines until it had evolved. 
And they, they gave this example. I wish I would have brought the article, but they gave this example where they said, imagine if you had the instructions to build, the only instructions that we had to build the first DVD player, but the instructions were locked in a DVD. How would you, how would you build it? You've got all the instructions you need to build the first DVD player, but you, they're on a DVD. And of course, you say, well, how did, how did it happen in, in real life? Well, here's how it happened in real life. You had an intelligent human designer who designed both at the same time. Amen. But in, in, in nature, you have the same thing. You need the molecular machines to be able to turn the protein into whatever it is that you're turning it into for it to evolve, supposedly. But you don't have that information unless you have those molecular machines. So again, how did it happen? It all came into existence at the same time. It was all designed and created by God. See, creation indicates that there is a wise and knowledgeable creator. Does it prove God? No. Does it disprove evolution? I think so. But, the, but it does indicate, it does indicate that God, that there was a God, that there is a God who is wise and knowledgeable. Now, of course, we shouldn't come to church without having a little bit of application for our own souls and spirit. I'd like you to look at Psalm 139 and verse 14. We'll read this passage. I'll make a quick application and we'll be done. Psalm 139 and verse 14. I will praise thee. I will praise thee. For I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Can't we really say that to this morning? We are fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are thy works, and that my soul knoweth right well. My substance was not hid from thee. When I was made in secret and curiously wrought in the lower parts of the earth, thine eyes did see my substance, yet being unperfect. And in thy book all my members were written, which I in continuance were fashioned, when as yet there was none of them. Notice verse 17. This, this God, this, this creator, who, who not only has enough knowledge and ability to set the stars and moons and the solar system and the universe in motion. But he, he has enough time and, and intelligence to be able to go down to those, the smallest cell and make sure it's got the right engines and abilities to be able to do what that does. And, and these cells are like universes in and of themselves inside of our bodies. And that creator God, verse 17 says, the Bible says about that God, he says, how Precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God. The God that created all of this, do you know that he thinks about you? How great is the sum of them? The sum of what? The sum of the thoughts that he has about you and me. If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. And if you're a child here today, if you are in college, if you are being taught these lies of evolution, if you are being taught that you are nothing but an accident, you are just an animal that evolved, there is no value to your life and there is no purpose to your life. I want you to understand this this morning. Not only does nature point towards the fact that there is a wise creator God, but the Bible reveals the fact that there is a wise creator God who cares and thinks about you, who loves you who has a purpose and a plan for you. That's what the Bible teaches. So what are you doing to live in that plan? What are you doing to live in that purpose? See, the the funny thing about Christians is that we'll say we don't believe in evolution, but then we'll live our lives as if evolution was true. We say we believe that there's a creator God. We say that we believe that there is a God who gave us the Bible, but then when it comes to actually following what the Bible says, eh, will live like there is no God. God thinks about you. God has a plan for you. God has a purpose for you. That's why I had to have a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Lord, thank you for these verses in the Bible that can direct us towards science, true science, science that can be observed, science that can be uh, tested and predicted and experimented upon. And Lord, I pray that you would help all of us from time to time, not that it would consume our lives, but from time to time that we would take the time to consider the heavens, to consider creation, to consider nature and even our own bodies, to praise you for the fact that we are fearfully and wonderfully made, and to remember that if we were created We were created with a purpose and there is a creator that we are accountable to. Father, we love you in your precious name I pray. Amen.